So this evening, I would like to look at uh, creative wise love, but before I start with that, I would like to look a little at uh, what happens when we do meditation. And looking a little at uh, some of the effect we might experience. And so I would make a difference between what I would call experiencing like a meditative state where you might feel quiet and clear or you might see something clearly or you might feel spacious or you might have a great calm. And I think what one has to be careful of is that when we sit in meditation, we are not going for always experiencing that effect. Time to time on a meditation retreat or at home, we can experience that effect. And of course, it's nice to feel quietness, clarity, peace. I mean, it's always nice. And also it helps us to experience ourselves a little differently. But I would not say this is in a way the goal of the meditation. This is not the main effect of the meditation. I would say it's something that happened. It's a side effect of the meditation. And of course, if it happened, we can enjoy it. But generally, it comes and it goes. Because like all things, that too is impermanent. So to be careful to assume, ah, now finally I'm experiencing this quiet and clear state, and now from now on, I will always experience it. You might experience it time to time, but I cannot guarantee that you will experience it all the time. It very much depends on condition, your level of energy, your level of intention, and also many different other things. (coughs) But it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Of course, it happens. But to me, what is the most important effect is actually what I would call the effect of releasing. And that is an interesting effect because you can have a good or a bad meditation and you will still have that taste of that effect. And the way we can notice it, because it's quite a subtle effect, is that you sit in meditation And who knows, you might be really bright and clear, or you might be a little sleepy, or you might be lots of thought. But notice at the end of it, after 30 minutes of walking or sitting, generally there is like this, what I call the effect. It's like a little something is released. And this little release, in a way, that's what to me is one of the main effects of the meditation. That over time, it accumulates, and then it helps us to move from grasping, from holding, to creative engagement. And that's why often when people leave a retreat, they say they feel the effect for about up to three months, depending on their condition. And then, like all things, it goes. And one a friend said to me one day about this effect, she said, I leave a retreat, I go home, and I look at my daughter in such a different way. And, you know, for the first few days, it's so peaceful. And then, of course, it changes. But it was very interesting, and I think it's that releasing effect that you're not kind of holding, fixing. You're really meeting the person in the moment instead of meeting the person how they were two weeks ago or what they did yesterday. You really see them in that moment and encounter them in that moment. So I think in a way to be careful about kind of often I feel people sit in meditation waiting for something to happen. And most of the time not much happens. But the releasing effect, that I think happened. And over time, that's what it makes a difference in our daily life, the way we are with what we encounter. Then I wanted to speak about, 
in a way, the, the, what we, the difference and what we, again, doing here through this releasing, the difference between grasping and creatively engaging. And so to see, I'm not using the word unattached, the word detachment, but I'm just using these two words, grasping and creative engagement. Because I think the releasing, to me what happened with the releasing, is not just that something goes, but because that something goes, in a way, there is an open space in which then our creative potential can happen. So we're not trying to become impervious to things. So that if I meditate long enough, finally I'll be in a constant state of floating on a cloud. And anything that happens, who cares, I am on my little cloud. Personally, I don't find that very interesting. And I don't think that's what the meditation is about. But I think the meditation is about, in a way, dissolving something. And then, actually, it's not this empty void, but it allows for this creative engagement this creative response to what we encounter and to what we experience. So what I like to look at is first to see a little how the process of grasping works, because I think that's quite fascinating. It's, quite, it's interesting to look at. And I think it's very important to see that we, again, not going for eradication of grasping, but we're going for diminishing of grasping. That if we grasp 95%, we might move it more toward 50%. Because I think just in terms of, I think grasping is a survival mechanism. But I think it's kind of how much do we do it? And by doing it, what are the consequences of this? Because I think grasping as a kind of is a process which actually can be quite harmful. So let me do my uh, little party trick, the only one this week. So let's say this is precious, it's gold or diamond, or it's the greatest truth in the universe. But what is important is that it's mine. So it's precious, it's mine. And so I want to hold on to it. I want to keep it, I want to protect it, I want to keep it close. So I do this. And if I do this for any length of time, two things happen. The first thing that happens is that I get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> and this generally is a signal of grasping. If we feel tension, often it's a signal there is grasping, there is holding. But actually, if I do this, there is something much more problematic. That if I do this, I cannot use my hand for anything else. <laughs> so I'm stuck to what I'm grasping at. Then what's the solution? First solution, you cut the hand. <laughs> it's a little drastic, but this is, I would say, the ascetic path. That's cutting the hand. Next one is getting rid of the object. And then it gives the impression that if there is no object, there is no grasping. But when you see something in a shop window and you think, hmm, I want this, and you really feel like the thing is kind of calling out to you, you know, like, you know, the... The, the, on out the moment, you have these uh, weird glasses, Google glasses, which are coming out, and they do weird things. And you might think, wow, <laughs> I need these glasses. It's kind of like the glasses are calling out to you. There is a glow around it. They say, you really want me, you know. You did not know it, but you need me so much. You know, whatever, you, you see something and you think, wow. And it's like nearly the thing is calling out to you. But the thing is really not calling out to you. It came upon condition, it's there. 
And it's us, by grasping at it, who kind of do this magnification of it, the glow around it. And so, I don't think removing the object is a solution. So then, I would say what we do here on this retreat is one of the solutions, which is to slowly, slowly, slowly release. And then, there is openness. I can move the thing, I can use it, there is freedom. So that's what we're trying to do here, to in a way uncoil, to kind of kind of open up to our circumstances is in, instead of grasping, holding. And so in a way to look at this process of grasping, you grasp, of course grasping goes with identification. When you grasp, you identify. I, me, mine. Then you solidify around what we grasp at. You limit yourself to it. And then you magnify. This is what is the greatest difficulty with grasping. Is that it makes us magnify what we grasp at. And so the more you magnify it, the more you reduce yourself. And that's why grasping is so painful. It's so very restrictive. Very narrowing. And so when we grasp, you have these two sidelines. And one sideline, and this is again a signal, proliferation. And we can proliferate in many different ways. But let me give you an example. So over there, you have a wonderful flower arrangement. And there is somebody here doing wonderful flower arrangement. So you come into the room, you see this wonderful flower arrangement, and you think, wow, this is great flower arrangement. It's beautiful. It really brings something to the room. Great. How can I get these flowers? What did she use? <laughs> how, how can I get the same plant in my garden? Do I need a greenhouse? How am I going to get a greenhouse? Do I need to rob a bank? <laughs> So in a way, as soon as I grasp, identify, I am not with the beauty of the thing anymore. I am with the proliferation of it. But I can have another proliferation. Oh, yeah, great flower arrangement. I am such a terrible flower arranger. I really, I mean, I try, it's, I could never do this. I am such a hopeless person. You know, I can't even do that. You know, I mean, let alone anything else. And then pff, you go into this really negative uh, proliferation. So in a way, it's, it's to see. You grasp, you identify, and then you proliferate, and you go into abstraction. And then you're not with the thing anymore. Or you have exaggeration. And so you come into contact with something, and then either it is the greatest thing in the universe, and it will give you the most fantastic happiness forever after, or it is the worst thing in the universe. So there is like, so, and as soon as you do that, as soon as you do exaggeration, then it's hard to be creatively engaged because. It's so big. How could you, you handle this the most, the worst? It's like, it's overwhelming. And that's the thing to see, that when we grasp in that way, and we exaggerate, like one way to notice it is when you say, I cannot stand this. Basically, you are grasping and exaggerating. I'm not saying it's not difficult. But I think sometimes you do this to very minor things. I cannot stand this. He never washes his cups of tea. <laughs> or I cannot stand this pain. That, of course, that I think is more dramatic. But how can I be with this pain? Because if you magnify it and it's already quite tough, then you increase it. There is this wonderful book by uh, Darling Cohen, who was a Zen teacher. And when she was 40, 
she had this rheumatoid arthritis, so she had a lot of pain. And before she was really active. And then because of that condition, she had to, you know, change her lifestyle. And she tell of one day where she is really, she's really, really not well. And the only thing she can do is lie down in her bed. And instead of grasping at the pain and grasping at the fire, she can't do anything or whatever it is, she decides to creatively engage with the whole room. That this room in this moment is her universe, is her world, and she's going to explore it. And so she starts to look at the light, at the color, at the sound, And she said, it's like I discover another world, like something I never thought about. Suddenly I see the room, I see the space, I hear the sound in such an experiential way. And so it kind of, in a way she discovers the riches of that moment because she does not magnify the sensation she was experiencing. And so through that she could also experience something else. She was not locked. She was not reduced to her condition or reduced to her pain. She could have the sensation and at the same time be open to something else. So her world could be much wider than just the sensation she was experiencing. And that's what I mean by the difference between grasping, reducing, magnifying, and creative engagement. And that's what we're cultivating here, creative engagement. Anytime you get lost in some story, terrible story or wonderful story, you come back. Then you come back to this whole moment. And we cannot only creatively engage in this moment, in this experience. Of course we can reflect and do all kinds of things, but in the end, So experience is now. And so to see that when we grasp, then in a way we go somewhere else. We go often into abstraction, into the story of the thing, instead of the experience, the creative engagement of it. And that's why for me, I don't talk about detachment. I don't think this is about detachment. I don't think this is about non-attachment. I think it's actually removing the obstacle to actually really engaging, creatively engaging with our world, with ourselves, with others. And in a way, this leads me to the topic creative wise love. Because often this is one of the, the questions, but if we do meditation, we should not be attached to anything. And somebody once was telling me, I should not be attached to coffee. No? I said, well, I think it's okay. You know? <laughs> I don't think coffee is, you know, unless you drink you know, 10 liters of it a day, one or two cups of coffee, I think it's fine. I don't think this is major problematic attachment or tea or whatever it is. But I think to see that when we talk about this non-grasping, We're not talking about removing ourselves from others. We're not talking about cutting ourselves from others. But we're talking about meeting others in a different way. And that's why I talk about creative, wise love. And because personally I feel that love is essential feeling to have for a human being. I think this is really one of the vital feeling we have, a quality we really need to experience, we really need to cultivate. And so in a way, to see the difference between this idea of non-grasping, non-attachment, and then this other idea of love and care. And to me, the meditation, and this is very much something for our daily life. We're always relating to people, we're relating to ourselves. How do we relate to ourselves and others? Do we relate to ourselves and others in a loving way, in a caring way? 
And I would say that actually love is so essential because it helps us to open to others, to open to life, to learn to see beyond ourselves, to appreciate somebody else, to appreciate something else. Because in one way we're a little stuck in here. I mean, nobody can have our illness for us, nobody can have our thought for us, and we can't really know. I mean, we can surmise what really somebody feel or think. So we're a little kind of like in case in this body and mind, heart. And I think loving is something that in a way moves us, opens us to ourselves, to others, with this kind of like caring, kind, appreciation, interest. So it's kind of helping us to relate, to relate to life, to relate to the world. And what I find is interesting with um, love is to look at the texture. How does it feel? Not as an idea, but as an experience. When we love somebody, when we love something, how does it feel? And generally, it feels warm. And so to me, this is an essential kind of quality. We need to experience it that warm. And notice, uh, I love my niece, and whenever I see my niece, I feel warm. I love snow. When Rarely where I live, when it's snow, I feel, ah, great, snow. And then there is this warmth, there is this lightness. There is a lightness to us when we love something. And that's why we have this strange problem. That actually, if we do not love ourselves, we are stuck with this person 24 hours a day. That is a bit tough, you know. Can't get rid of it. Can't change it. But look at it the other way. What if we really loved ourselves? Then we would be warm and light all the time. (laughs) We would not need much more than that. And it's such an easy way to feel light, to feel warm. And so in a way, to, to see how often we have this really critical discourse about ourselves. I'm not good enough. I should be able to do this. But what about that? And then it's kind of like, you know, I am with this ghost. It's kind of like, you know, unfriendly. Ooh. But if you turned it around, and to me this was one of the, the gifts of meditation. I feel that the awareness we're cultivating is not just to see the bad stuff. I think we have to be careful there, to think, you know, I must find every bad habit and then I'm going to sort myself out. (laughs) But I think the awareness is actually to see both. To see that, yes, we have some difficulty, we have some limitation, we have some uh, painful habits. But that's not all there is to us. We also have a lot of good quality, a lot of good, positive habit. And so in a way, the creative awareness makes us aware equally of both. And if you become more aware of your positive habit, your positive quality, actually you think, yeah, I'm not a bad person, I'm quite a nice person, quite compassionate, hmm. And you kind of start to feel, hmm, yeah a bit lighter, a bit warmer. And if you're lighter and warmer, it's also easier to feel lighter and warmer toward others. I think this is the thing, the more we kind of like tight, then it's very hard for any space for other things. But if we feel warmer about ourselves, lighter about ourselves, then, ah, you kind of, kind of, you know, it opens up to ourselves and the world. So the two, you know, we work together. And when I realize the importance of that warmth, of that relationship, 
was when my uh, grandmother, I mean, I live upstairs, and then my grandmother used to live downstairs with my mother. And my grandma used to love me. She really used to really love me. We had a great connection. And so whenever I went to travel, when I came back, she was like beaming, ah, you're back, it's wonderful. I really made her day. Kind of, you know, she would feel warm seeing me, applied it. She really, she was so happy to see me. And then about two years before she died, something, I think, something went, like very likely in the brain or something else. Something went, like the neuron or whatever. And then I would come back and she would look at me like, like she would see me, but there is not that effect anymore. And I had the feeling she, she could not have that connection anymore. She could not have that relationship anymore. But one thing she could have it with was with animals and flowers. And so whenever my niece brought her a little rabbit, she would spend the whole day sitting next to the rabbit in his cage. And my feeling is she did this so that by being next to this rabbit, she could again feel the warmth, feel the lightness, feel the connection to something. Or when there was flowers, she would go in the garden. It was very strange. She would go in the garden, cut huge branches full of flowers, and then she would bring them to us. Look. And again, I felt that, again, there was that connection through the flower to us which again uplifted her. And so I think that's why it's so important that in a way we can love, we can cherish, we can appreciate. But often we associate love with liking. I love somebody because I like them. And generally I like them because they like me. That generally a little go together. Or they think like me. That's the next one, you know. I like them. But I lived for many years in community. And living in community with other people, you realize that you don't like everybody. (laughs) Because you really don't see eye to eye. When you live in community, you really start to see people really don't see the same thing. They really come into a room and they really the perception are really different. There is very different type of people. And so it's kind of, you know, like you generally like and feel friendly with the people you have the kind of generally the same perception, same apprehension. And then the other one, you know, you never know how they're going to react and they're a bit funny and mm. but what I found over time that even if I did not have you know, strong connection with someone and we did not like each other that much, actually I still cared for them because I shared the space, I related to them, and I cared for them as human beings, as common fellow human beings, having the same aspiration. And that's when I realized that maybe we don't need necessarily to really, really, really like somebody, to care for them, or to appreciate them. And so I think to, to again be careful to this quick association, I love something, I like it, and then all that comes with it. Then what's fun with um, love is that there is lots of possibility. You can love yourself, you can love your friends, your children, your family, I mean, unless your cat, your trees, snow. I mean, there is lots of things we can love. It's kind of like, and what is weird is that we have this feeling that there's only so much love. So, if that person loves me, but also love this and love that, that I'm going to get less love because there only is that much. And if he gives or she gives a little bit over there, I'm not going to get it. So we have a very kind of like, I would say, proprietorial and also limited. That kind of love is only a little bunch. But I would say no. That's what is beautiful about love, that the more 
we love, the more it ripples. The more we experience it, the more, in a way, it's kind of like it spreads. It's very interesting if you are with somebody who is really kind and friendly, how that reverberate. I mean, there was a neighbor near us, and uh, once I found she was really stuck, and I said, oh, can I help you? And she really needed to go to the supermarket, so I took her there brought her back. But then I was wondering, I mean, she's this old lady, how come she has nobody? And then I realized she had nobody to help her, because she cut everybody out. Her children, her neighbor, anything. She was always getting into trouble with everybody and disliking them because they did this or they did that. And so in a way, her relationship was smaller and smaller and smaller to such degree that me, a stranger, would actually offer to help her because there was nobody else. And then I look in a way at my mother who there is lots of people around her And she's really well supported because there is that really light, loving quality to her. She's, you know, generally sees the good in people and generally has no trouble with nobody. And and it kind of like when people are with her, everybody will meet my mother, all my friends, and I think this is weird. They say, but she's fantastic. And I think, she's my mother. She's okay. But people can see something there. Something that is light, that is bright. And I think, I think that's what love and this loving kindness practice you were, you were doing today, that's what it brings. This lightness, this openness, this brightness. So then, what we have to be careful with this loving thing is when we project it too much outward. That sometimes, that's why I think it's so important to love ourselves, so that our identity doesn't rest in the love of somebody else. Because if that person stops loving you, where does your identity go? I mean, if you rest your identity in somebody else, I think, you know, things are impermanent, so you have to be careful there, who you trust it with. But I think it's just to... To, to see, of course, if somebody loves us, it's a great gift. I think one of the greatest gifts. The fact that you think, I'm not that great, and then this person says, you are so great, I love you. And you think, you know, what's the matter with them, you know? <laughs> but if you live long enough with them, you think, yeah, they really love me. Oh, that's nice. Well, if they love me, I must be lovable. So, hmm, yeah, of course it's nice to be loved. But if you put your identity all there, then it's kind of a shaky identity because you change, people change. So I think to see love is not so much about identity, but it's about, about, more about building that openness, building that warmth, building that lightness. And also know that we love the person for us. That, I think, is often is kind of tricky. Of course, we love them because they love us. I mean, that generally can go a little together. But not only that, we need to love them for who they are and not who we want them to be for ourselves. Because then our love is a little like, a little kind of uh, fragile. Then there is often another thing we love if often there is that identity, love, romantic love. And then romantic love, that's really like big exaggeration. I'm not saying it's not intense and things of that nature. But I think is to associate romantic love or loving somebody with this intense falling in love feeling. When I fell in love with my husband, it took three days, and I was in this intent. And I must say, I was quite happy when it stopped. I thought, this is tiring stuff, you know. I mean, if you feel intensely like this all the time, you know, it's a bit kind of, you know, nerve ending. And I think this is we have to be careful to think 
that love is just this intense emotion. This kind of like whiz bang. It's a bit like enlightenment. Enlightenment, often people think it's like a Christmas tree going, you know, you sit in meditation and suddenly you lit like a Christmas tree <laughs> and you start to float. And I think there is a little idea like this with romantic love, like whiz bang, you know, the big bang. And the problem with the big bang is that, you know, it happens and then it goes and then the universe is created. I think it's the same with love. Falling in love is an emotion of it. But then loving is a development of it, is a cultivation of it. And often I have the feeling that love, we think it's an emotion, it should be there, and I have, don't have to do anything about it. It's just like thinking if I just sit in meditation, enlightenment should pop in. I don't need to, do, to have anything to do. Well, maybe it's going to jump from the bulb over there. You know, maybe it's there, you know. <laughs> Generally, it doesn't jump. Same with love. So I think, in a way, to me, that love is something we cultivate. And we intentionally cultivate. Because actually, it's very easy to stop loving. Especially if you associate the feeling with just that emotional feeling. If it's intense, I love the person. If it's not intense, I don't love the person anymore. I don't think it can be like this, because emotion change. We can't feel intensely all the time. And so I would say love is really looking, what is love? Do we think it's just this feeling? Or do we, do we see that it's all kind of thing coming together? Caring, appreciation, sharing. And also to see, like I find that interesting with children. I see I don't have children myself. But I, f- I see uh, children with their mother. And I think it's uh, the moment where the child says, three years old, I hate you. <laughs> because she's not giving them ice cream or whatnot. And generally in that moment, the mother feels they, they, they really hate me forever after. You know, they're traumatized for life. And five minutes later, you know, they love her to bits. But it's kind of interesting to think, you know, it must be all the time the same. I think the way we feel, I mean, with with the caring, the appreciation, the sharing, that can be continuous. But the way we feel about the person, the child, the friend at any given time, this is going to change with condition. If we're tired, if we're ill, doesn't mean we don't care, we don't appreciate, we cannot share. So I think we have to be a little kind of be aware of that. Then another thing to look at is do we grasp at the feeling? Do we grasp at the feeling? And then we want the feeling to be there all the time. Do we grasp at the person that gives us a feeling? So then we want to be with the person all the time. When I was first married to my husband, I would sit next to him all the time. (laughs) And he kind of felt a little kind of, you know, (laughs) crowded in. Until I realized what that was doing. Not only was it kind of crowding him a bit, but because I was grasping at him, I was not developing any relationship with other people. I was not making friends. And then I realized that love is not like two eggs coming together. Because I think this is, again, the idea of romantic love. If you love somebody, then you're going to think the same, experience the same. It will become that is just two eggs becoming one. And then I realized, no, 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 no. It's actually like two parallel lines. And then what's in between the lines can grow. But outside of the line, you also have to relate to others. You also have to grow more kind, different loves. And that's when I realized that the more there is love, the more it grows with other people, with all kinds of things, as long as we don't grasp. That's why I talk about creative wise love, because creative wise love can 
kind of just open, is more spacious, more open-ended, more growing. When grasping love, grasping at the feeling, which is going to change anyway, grasping at the person, then it kind of tightens you, tightens the person. And then, the last thing I wanted to mention is about love. So you have the feeling, you love your child, you love your partner, and then, for example, with a partner, you fall in love, you love, oh yes, you know, let's live together. And then you live together, and then generally, problem ensue. And then generally you assume there is not enough love. Because if there was enough love, we would not have all this problem. But what we don't see is that when you start to live together, the same with being with children too, is actually the love is not the problem, the feeling is not the problem, the problem is a habit. Two sets of habits get together. And then generally each of the person feels if they love me enough, they would change and have my habits and drop their terrible habits. <laughs> but then each thinks the same. And then you think my habits are better than yours. And to me, that's where the creativity comes in, to see what's going on here. When they think, and so I would say the gift of love is actually the gift of acceptance, of saying yes to a child, saying yes to a partner, saying yes to a friend. And when you start from that, you say yes to the whole person. Instead of saying, I love you, but only if you change this, then I love you. But as long as you don't change this, forget it. But then they say, but if you change that, I'll do the same. So in a way, it's to see we start with the acceptance. We accept the whole person. And then from that place, we can work with what is difficult because we're not going to accept everything. We accept, but then we have to see what is difficult. How comes the difficulty comes in? How do we harm each other? How can we understand what is going on? I used to have these weird things with my husband in... Uh, airport. There would be some urgency and I would go faster and he would go slow. <laughs> and I thought he was doing it on purpose to annoy me. <laughs> Until I realized it just was our survival mechanism. Something is problematic, I go fast, he goes slow. And once I saw it and I pointed it out, I said, mm, yeah, and now I go a little slower, he goes a little faster, and then we meet in the middle. So in a way, it's to see. We generally don't do it on purpose. Like if suddenly one, of, one person becomes a little more kind of solitary, you think, well, they don't love me anymore. Very likely is that they need space. And so it's going to be, how, how can I tell them if it's too spacious, then, you know, they're a bit too far. Goodbye. <laughs> How can we meet somewhere that is not too far away? How can we talk about this? And that's where the creativity comes in. How can we creatively love each other? How can you creatively love a child? Recently I read this amazing book, Not Far From the Tree. And it was an amazing book about Parents who have children who are not like the usual children. Generally, you have a child, you expect them to be just like every other child or like your dream child. But here he was looking at, you know, either if there was a mental disability, physical disability, great illness, all kind of thing. And what was interesting was that some parents really embrace the child, no matter what it was, no matter what. And they kind of, in a way, what I would see in action, were describing was creative, wise love. And then others just could not do it. It was like, no way. 
And there was this incredible story about this uh, young baby who was born like really, 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 really disabled. It was long ago. And so she was put in an orphanage. And they really did not take care good of the kids. And everybody thought, you know, she was really dumb and everything. She really was. And then when she was 15 and she managed to survive the bad condition in the orphanage, somebody who worked with these people with this kind of difficulty, disability, had found a way to communicate with them because she could not speak. And, and then she realized that that child was actually really intelligent. And then the child, I mean, she was a young woman by then, and she lived up to 35, that she wrote about it. She wrote a book about how it felt to be considered like a non-being. Well, actually, she was a being. She was a true being. And so, in a way, that person saw something there. And through that creative, wise love, wise attention, the life was transformed. And to me, this is like, wow, it's amazing, you know, that for 15 years, nobody was there for her, and then suddenly, it made all the difference. So, that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? When I was a nun in Korea, uh, you see, I mean, if you really want to, to know the whole story, then actually you can uh, get a book. <laughs> uh, because I, I wrote a book because um, I was a nun in Korea for 10 years, and it was a very special experience for me, and I was really lucky to be able to do that because in Korea they really have a very, very good meditation practice, and also, they are wonderful people. They're really kind. They're really they're wonderful people. So I was extremely fortunate. And while I was there, I met a lot of wonderful nuns. Because what is interesting in the Buddhist tradition is that the position of the nun is a little haphazard. And in different countries, there will be different level of where the nun can be. And so I have a little percentage, you know. In some countries, they are like minus 10. In others, they are 30%, other 45. And Korea is actually the best. They are, I would say, 95% equal. Because there's still a bit of patriarchy in there. And so while I was there, I really met lots of really impressive nuns. And my favorite one was a little one. It was a little one. She was so humble. She was very humble. But she had a wonderful story to tell. And she was really looked up to. But whenever she was a leader of the whole, and I meditated with her, and whenever she had a free time, she would be working, gathering echo, and doing things. And I would do them with her. And then we became friends, and she told me her life story, which was really a good life story. And then I wanted that to be published, and so I wrote my life story as a nun, so that I could make a book of the two. And that's why you have this terrible title of uh, Women in Korean Zen, which is actually our two life story, and then some of our poetry. So that's what is wonderful about in Korea, is that you can really, as a nun, have the same possibility as uh, the monks the same studies, the same practice, and you really have lots of wonderful. And what was interesting now, things are changing, but because it's a very Confucianist society, then often you imagine nuns become nuns because, you know, failed romance or failed life or things of that nature. When actually in Korea it was the opposite. Often the, the, the women became nuns in order to get out of the Confucianist system. Because in the Confucianist system, you are the daughter of so-and-so, 
the wife of so-and-so and the mother of so-and-so. So generally you define yourself through the male, your father, your husband, your son. But if they became none, they were out of that. And then they could really become their own person. And so I met lots of really great nuns. They're really kind of, you know, really strong and really lots of practice. And I went once to um, one of the very good nunnery in Korea, where once they were doing a three-year retreat. I mean, in Korea, generally, you do three months, two times three months, 10 hours a day. With every two weeks, you get a day off. Day off. You sit for hours, and then you can go for walks or do your laundry. And they decided they were going to do a three-month, a three-year retreat. And they were going to do it in silence, because in Korea, you're not in silence, generally, because you sit so long. And uh, so there were three years in silence, so I, I went to visit them during the certain period you could. And what was wonderful about them, they were so light. You could really feel the lightness that came from their practice. And that's what I saw really in Korea while I was there with the monks or the nuns, is that in a way often the more the people had practice, the more they had this lightness, they had this kindness about them. You know, and at the beginning everybody was really so serious about enlightenment, you know, this is a matter of life and death and and they were kind of a little heavy. And then the more they practiced, generally you felt this kind of like this spaciousness, this openness. And I remember one day I went for working in the field with uh, the then master of the temple. And we are coming back. And as he was crossing the river, he was like, and he was 70 years old, he was like, so light. And he turned and he smiled at me. And, and he was like, that lightness. So and it was great. It was really good to practice there. And then the nun, to see the nun, was uh, also very inspiring. And then once I asked them, because I did a book about Buddhist women, and I came back later as a lay person, and uh, I was asking them the one question I thought I would ask them. And I stopped asking them very quickly because I got the same answer. And the question was, what is it that inspire you? I saw they would say, oh, a great text or a great teacher or... And they looked at me like, what is it that inspired me? Myself. I inspire me. (laughs) So once three of them told me the same thing, I thought, okay, okay, I get the message. (laughs) That's okay. You inspire yourself. So that's what also was quite really... And then I was also asking them about, you know, what do you think about, you know, the monks and the nuns. And I say, oh, don't worry about the monks. You know, it's just like the wing of a bird. If he wants to fly, he needs both wings. Just one, he's not going to get anywhere. So they're quite clear about their place in the whole thing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.